Welcome to Unashamed Unafraid, a show unashamed about sexual addiction recovery and unafraid of coming into Christ for healing. Where we talk about real recovery stories, answer anonymous questions with experts, and share resources that actually work. I'm your host, Steve. And I'm your co-host, Jason. And we are Unashamed Unafraid. Jason. Hey, Steve. What you don't know is I sit here and stare at Jason when we when we're sitting in here recording all these Jason sits like across from me lucky you lucky me indeed <laughs> so I sit here with Jason all the time but it's it's good to have you here and actually hear you well I, I love doing this so I don't know sometimes I prefer to ignore you but I'm glad that you're here <laughs> and you're doing this episode with us so nice um so we're back another recovery story yep. um Tim and Callie Tim and Callie crush it so I have to be honest I'm pretty arrogant. That is a flaw of if we were in a 12 step meeting, I would say one of my character defects is being super arrogant, think I'm smarter than everyone else, a lot of things like that. Um this I mean, we've we've talked about this. You and I have a lot in common there, but yeah, Jason yeah. is also a freaking know-it-all. <laughs> so annoying. Um uh, so I learned a lot from them. Yeah. Like, and I'm someone who thinks I've kind of like know it all. As I down. just stated, yeah. like, I got it down. Like, I get this. There's patterns. Blah, blah, blah. Like, just the way they said stuff and, like, their honesty. Wow. You, you could really see the, the, I mean, we talk about this every once in a while anyway, but you could really see, like, the love in their relationship, too, and the trust that's been built there. Um, I mean, this is one of those ones where he had multiple disclosures and the trust has been built up and then knocked down and built up and knocked down and just the way they came back from that is, is really inspiring. Well, and, and like several of our stories, she has one, her side of it is like, there are were so many times that I'm like, not a person in the world would tell you to stay with this guy. Yeah. yeah. Like well, and, and not her- going anywhere. Like you've given him a long enough leash. Like you've, you've, you've done 70 times 70 on the forgiveness thing. Like it's, it's not going to happen. Like move on. And, and how she navigated her way staying true to herself and kind of figuring that out, you know, and some well, unique and stuff to their story. Part of what I loved about it was she talked about how her family reacted to it. And we, I mean, in the bonus content, we talk a little bit more about that and, you know, maybe what she wishes could have been different and, and what they did right and, and things like that. And so that was some really good stuff. Yeah. And, and I liked how um, uh, we've got feedback before that we need more people on who have, you know, been divorced or things haven't worked out. And so, they didn't get married. So for her side, she was, you know, in, t- in her, her mid, late 30s, everyone defined that when she got married, mm-hmm. hadn't been married before. So that's that's a, a, a group of people that often, particularly in LDS culture, will be like, oh, a woman who's, uh, you know, over 35, like the only person she can marry is a weirdo. And that's a really tough situation, yeah. you know, um, which, I mean, I can relate. I have a sister who's in that age. It's a really tough place to be. And then this is a second marriage for him. So this isn't, you know, the Chris and Autumn high They're school sweethearts where it's yeah. like, or Kayla and I, where it's like, oh, well, you only record the stories that work out. Like these guys have been through some stuff. Well, and they're, they're really authentic too. And you can feel that. And I, I really appreciated that too. Oh, they're bro- and so a lot of times when we have people on here, they're kind of not sure what part to share. So sometimes we like not help them be honest, but we're like, oh yeah, so so tell us about that. Like disclose about that. Like like we want to know more about that. They were so honest. Yeah, that was actually one of the things I learned. Is I was like, I don't know that I'm as honest and accountable as Tim is. Like that was an example to me. Yep. So cool. And you'd mentioned the bonus content. Yep. So for those of you who don't know, I'm a huge Christian hip hop fan. That's what actually it was Christian hip hop lyrics from the artist Lecrae that inspired me to start Unashamed and Afraid. Was there's there's plenty of people like me, all outsiders like me, all unashamed and all unafraid to live out what they're supposed to be, which is where Unashamed and Afraid comes from. And it's also where the term outsiders come from. And we wrestled with a long time what to call our group of, you know, subscribers and those those who help build our mission and what we're doing. And they're outsiders because they've chosen to be bold and they feel they're accepted. They're centered in their relationship with God, they're just from an else. And of course, they're unashamed. And so in the bonus content of this episode, they talk about their sexuality 
and how there's still a lot of growing and learning there for them about how her family responded um, and the story she leaves and and what happened with them and how the extended family kind of supported and and how the conversations changed with them. Um, so super cool. So you can become an outsider uh, by going to unashamedunafraid.com slash donate. Um, donate whatever you can annually or monthly, um, $5, $10, whatever it is. Um, that money goes to fund scholarships, which if you also go to the website, you can see the current scholarships we have. If you're in need of recovery help, we invite you to apply for one. If you have an awesome recovery story, tell us about it. If you have anonymous questions, submit them. We do episodes about those. If this is your first time coming and listening, we love you. We're happy that you're here. If you're one of our outsiders, we love you. Thank you so much. And what you're doing is making a huge difference. You are what makes this all possible. This is an awesome story. Jason, I'm ready if you're ready. I'm so ready. Let's do this. Boom. Here's Tim and Callie. Tim and Callie, how are you guys? Doing great. How are you? Um, I think that you're better than I am because I'm cold and I think that you're not. <laughs> well, probably not as cold. Yes. Yeah, so, because um, you guys are, what part of Arizona are you in? We're in Tucson, Southern Arizona. Okay. Okay. I like Tucson. Closer to place. the border, right? Yeah. Yep. yep. So, um, well, we're just up here in Salt Lake freezing. No big deal. Um, but, anyways, just super excited to have you guys here. Um, I know you have an amazing story. So, uh, I know I'm kind of like, it's the cliche, right? Like we all know this kind of started in childhood and what that happened, but it always shapes uh, all of us individually, right? Of kind of what happened in background. So, um, Tim, we can start with you and then, you know, Callie's will just tell us kind of background, how you first got introduced, where addiction started for you, kind of all those basic questions. Sure. Um, I remember before I was even 10 years old, I had, without going into gross detail, uh, three very explicit sexual experiences between the ages of 8 and 10. Um, I wasn't abused. I wasn't uh, touched in any way. It was just different events that, that happened that when you're eight, nine, ten years old, you don't know how to deal with it. You don't know why, what's going on. You don't know how to process it. Um, you certainly don't want to talk to your parents about it. Um, and so that, it kind of just sat there for, for a few years. Then when I was 14, my family had, uh, there were some family friends and her son moved in with her for the summer and he introduced me to adult magazines. And so all those preteen memories and preteen emotions and preteen thought processes started flooding back. And without even realizing it, I was instantly on, on a destructive path. Uh, I would take a bicycle to bookstores where those type of magazines were on prominent display and all you had to do is reach up and grab one and you could hide off in a corner and, and look at pictures. And, um, and so that was, that was my, my teenage life is just trying to find those magazines, trying to find those, those ways of looking at images. There was no internet then. Uh, so it was, it was just magazines and pictures. I, would occasionally go to my bishop, my religious leader, um, and they would say, well, be clean. Just just stop looking at it. Be, be clean. Can't you just stop? Solve yeah. a lot of problems. Right, exactly. Yep. Just don't do it anymore. Yep. Um, okay, so I would be be clean for a while. and <laughs> uh, But uh, it, would, it would always come back. I would always search it out. I tried really hard before I went on my two-year church service mission. Um, but even on tell, the mission, tell us, tell us where you went. I went to Chicago, and then I got a mission transfer to St. Louis. Oh, cool! Both stateside. Cool. Yeah, both stateside. I'm stateside myself, so as am I. So. I'm, I'm <laughs> we're down with that. Yeah, yeah. Chicago was a well. I might have might as well have been in a whole different country because that was new to me. It was totally new to me. Um, 
but even on the mission, there were still ways. I mean, I couldn't necessarily go to a bookstore and grab a, a pornographic magazine, but I had a companion who liked to draw and he would go to bookstores and look at how to draw, get stencils, whatever. Well, I found out that there were books on photography and a lot of those books had uh, how to photograph nudes and with plenty of, you know, illustrations. Uh, so may not have been an adult magazine, but the effect was still exactly the same. Uh, I came home from my mission. Um, they, they said I had an honorable discharge. Uh, and they, shortly after that, I got married. Uh, probably within six months, I got married. And right about that time is when the internet came to be. Uh, it was still dial-up, still had to have a modem, but uh, yeah, that opened up a whole new candy store to to somebody like me. Um, so the question we often ask people here, and I think it's you know pretty common, um, when you got married, did you think that would fix it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I thought, okay, I'm married, we're, we get to have sex, I get to whatever with thoughts and fantasies are in my head that that's going to cure it all. And well, it, it obviously wasn't. Um, at, at the time, did you think like, I have an addiction, I have a problem? Cause I didn't. So no. yeah, no, um, I just, I, I thought, well, I knew I wasn't supposed to be looking at this. I knew sure. it, was, it wasn't something I was supposed to be doing, but an addict no, no, no. I was a good LDS Mormon boy. You just had a little problem. Had a problem. I was yeah. baptized at eight, went through all the, the milestones that you're supposed to go through as a young man at 12, 14, 16, sort of a mission, came home, got married. You know, all this stuff you're supposed to do as as a good Checking LDS those boxes. boy. So did you so did you two talk about it at all before getting married? Did you, were you a didn't talk about, because I was a totally snower, didn't talk about it at all. That's me, right? So did you say, hey, I, this was a problem in my past, but not anymore, or it kind of came up, like, or did you just not dialogue it? Well, Callie is my second wife. Oh, okay. Okay. She, she's my second wife. And so, no, when, when talk of my first wife, it was not brought up. It wasn't because I thought we we're going to get married and that was going to be the end of it. Sure. No big deal. Sure. Um, Three kids later, after bouncing around the world in the military, I finally came clean to to my ex-wife, and that just pretty much started a downward spiral. Once again, went to my religious leader. He said, "Be clean." That was, yeah. you know, that, that was the catchphrase of the '90s: "Is be clean." Yep. Um, uh, okay. Yay, I'll be clean. Um, yeah. And I'm assuming you were like most addicts where like you weren't like, I want to have my cake and eat it too. I'm sure that having the addiction was disappointing, frustrating, hopeless. Like you wanted the problem out of your life. Oh, I have said hundreds, if not thousands of times, that's it. Enough. No more. I just got to be stronger. I just got to pray more. I just got to have more faith. I'm never again, never, ever going to do this again. And, and it would help, but I didn't have the tools. You know, mm -hmm. I didn't have the, the yeah. knowledge. I didn't have what I needed to overcome my problem. Um, so uh, about seven years later, ended up getting divorced. It was... You know, it was spiraling downhill. She was miserable. I was miserable. The kids were miserable. We had four kids now at this point by the time the decision was made. Um, and so it was, If I figured if any of us had a chance to be happy again, then we needed to go our separate ways. But I loved being married. I, I actually enjoyed the marriage concept. You know, a mm -hmm. couple working together, being together, loving each other building a life together, having a family. I loved all of that. I enjoyed being married. So she and I met actually before the divorce was final. And uh, I talked to her a little bit. Do you want to talk about those pre-conversations? Well, and, and tell us a little bit kind of about just your, you know, your story, your background kind of coming into all of this. So I, um, I had just moved to from Utah to Mesa 
And uh, my, I think it was my second day at, at church. Um, we had a little like newcomers meeting um, and he was the first one there sitting in the, in the seat. And I had told myself, I didn't know anybody in this new area that I had moved to. And I had told myself that I was going to be outgoing and I was going to meet everybody and just be as friendly as possible. And he looked super depressed and down. And I just walked over and sat next to him and said, hi, I'm Callie. Poor girl. (laughs) um, (laughs) Anyway. So as, as we started dating after the, we didn't, we didn't date till after his divorce was final. Um, But I was, I, I was an old, I was older. I was 37 and, um, had never been married and I felt like I was good. Like I was comfortable being single. Mm -hmm. So it took him a while to kind of (laughs) break, break me down and, and, uh, made me like, I really, I really enjoyed being with him and it, when I broke up with him so many times, <laughs> but <laughs> four, he's holding up four just, just for the record. <laughs> I, um, but every time I, I just felt like, you know, he was my best friend and I really wanted to be with him. Sure. But we did talk about, he did tell me that he had a problem with addiction, but I was very naive and thinking, believing him that it was in the past. Yeah. So, so Tim, you kind of presented it as the hey, this is in my history. I want you to know about it, but I'm good now. And and at that time, I was actually on a on a pretty good path. Um, sure, th- things were going pretty well. So yeah, I thought that things were were in the past, or at least getting better. So which you know is only a half true, and so it means I was lying. Yes, and this was before you two got married that you disclosed this, right? Okay. Yeah. So, so Callie, so I have a sister who's, who's 38 and single, never been married. Um, and I think sometimes we do single people like a disservice because we're like, oh, you're not married, so you don't know. But I mean, I'm, you know, my sister's had several relationships that I'm like, what you've been through in those relationships is as meaningful as you know, someone's marriage relationship. I mean, she's dated people for multiple years and had different experiences. So did you have any of this come up in any of your d- previous dating experiences? Like, had you any had any experience with, I'll use the, the giant label sexual addiction or anything like that with anyone you'd previously dated? Or was this like first rodeo all the way around? This was the first rodeo all the way around, so. Okay. Okay, cool. So, so you get married, and it didn't fix everything. Well, I'll just insert that part of the story in case someone was wondering. Maybe this is the one that he did get married, yeah, and that was that's, it. That's why we're here today. <laughs> or anyone, by the way, if you were listening, disclose before you get married. Much better. But sorry. So you get married. Pick. Tell us the story from there. So we actually got married civilly first. Yeah. Okay. Because I had been sealed before, I had to get uh, first presidency our church leadership's permission to get married in the temple again. And so I, I laid out in my letter to the first presidency that, uh, Hey, I have, uh, I've been involved with pornography, but I'm, I'm clean. I'm good. I'm clean. (laughs) You have checked the box, my friend. Yeah. And, uh, so, and it took us a couple letters. First time we applied, we got turned down. Um, and that was kind of heartbreaking for us. And the second time, we, we got permission to get sealed. And and so about two years after we got married civilly, we got sealed in the Mount Timpanogos Temple up in Utah. Um, and it was it was wonderful. And it was beautiful. And then I was eight months pregnant. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then it's go ahead. What were you going to say? I think it was three, three or four years. Oh, anyway, a little while later. And then things started, that's when things started really coming to decision points in our, in our marriage. Um, 
we I had lost several jobs here in Arizona. I had lost uh, I couldn't I couldn't hold a job. We couldn't we had to we were almost having our house foreclosed on because I couldn't find a job. Uh, several applications, tried to get interviews, and I just things just weren't working out. So we sold our house in Arizona and we moved to live with with Callie's parents up in Utah. And we were there, we got a good job. Um, and then we, we had a chance to come back home to Tucson. So here we are, we got married civilly in 2011. 2000, 2014, we move up to Utah. 2017, we're moving down here to Tucson. And there was a ton of excitement uh, here in Tucson because we were getting our first temple. It was under construction. Things were were doing great, and and and, and how how had like what we now know as an addiction? How did that play out in that time in your marriage? From that when you guys got married to, to this 2017, like how had it came up and you just never told her about it? Like Callie, did you know that something was going on? Like what what was the dialogue during that point in time? I didn't know that he was. Um, participating in pornography. Um, I truly believed that like in my night, um, believed that he was not doing it anymore. And, um, there were instances where, um, we did have issues, um, with intimacy that I, that I was blaming on myself. Mm-hmm. And well, not just blaming her, I was making her feel guilty, manipulating, yep. putting pressure on. We call that gaslighting. Yeah. I say, Tim, you took the words out of my mouth. So I was, yeah. Yeah. Well, and Kelly, I'm glad that you shared that because that's a really common experience, you know? And I, and I've even, and I've even talked to women who have, who have contacted us, contacted me and they're like, is this normal? Is this normal? It's like, no, no. None of that is normal. Like, no, that's not, you know, and you can talk more about all that later. But so, so that had kind of come up and sorry, yeah. keep going. That was a big, that was the biggest thing with our marriage. I, I felt it was my fault. I felt that, um, that we couldn't connect because I, I had this issue with intimacy. So, um, yeah, yeah it was shortly after we moved to Tucson that um one of our he works nights so one of our sons had gone into our bedroom and he pulled tim's phone out into the hallway and i picked it up to put it back and i saw these messages from it was a private app that he had installed on his phone and he was having these sexual conversations with some lady and well, we need to back up just a little bit. Um, going back to the temple, I had been selected within a 50 some mile radius to be part of one of the dedicatory choirs for the temple dedication, mm-hmm. and which was an absolute dream come true for me. Um, and so shortly after we started rehearsals, I met this woman online. Uh, and we started innocently at first, and then it, it quickly got out of control. And it was it was an affair without the physicality, simply due she lived in a different state. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it sure. was as close as you could get without it being physical. And yes, one morning um, I was falling asleep. And just like she said, our son came in, picked up the phone, and she saw some messages. Um, and then she decided to, that for her own safety and for the kids' safety. Yeah, you still went to Utah. Two months later, was yeah. right away. Well, no. And the, the biggest thing, it was actually like, for me, I was still blaming myself. I still thought it was my fault that he had to go seek somebody out. Um, and for two months, I didn't talk to anybody about it. I didn't tell my family about it. Um, Did you talk to him about it? 
Did you confront I, him about I told, it? Yeah, that I when he woke up, I I told him that I found it and I made him delete the app, delete everything, like how I met her. Like I told him to get rid of it all. Um, so, as far as the the future of your relationship during this two months, was it just pure confusion, or did you have? Were you thinking I'm going to leave him, or I need to stick with him, or kind of what was your 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 feeling at that time? I guess I was very confused, and I was st- like I like I said, it was mostly like I was blaming myself that it was my fault, um, and he was too. He let me blame myself, and um, and a lot of it too. It wasn't just the intimacy part. He was blaming my business. He was blaming like every like everything was my fault. The, like all of the problems in our relationship was due to either my business or yeah, it was complete and total yeah. deflection. And yeah. um, she would she told me, "Well, you can't be part of the dedicatory choir." I said, "Well, I'm not doing anything wrong." Because at that point, I didn't think I was because nothing physical was going on. You know, your your typical stupid justification, let me talk my way out of this type of deal. So at, at this time, there was no communication with any uh, church leaders or anything either, right? It was just between you two and yeah. complete right. secrecy. Okay. Well, and I, and I liked him how you, like, are dialoguing how, how you did that, you know? Because I think it's important for people to understand, like... Sometimes people, I think, when we share stories, it's like, oh, you know, and and when someone pointed it out to him, he was like, gee whiz, you're right. I'm sorry. This is my fault. I'd like to be a cannibal. And here's all the other stuff I'm not being honest about. And there's just, you know, and and you'll get into, you know, your shame base, why you were where you were. Like, that's a life or death, death thing for you, right? Like, if people knew who you really were, if it all really came out. And so just, just the, you know, I guess thing I want to point out here is people always... Sometimes I think think that addicts like they have their cake and eat it too, and when they get caught, because what I want to say is, I know tons of men who have been caught just like your story who totally found healing, because getting out of it, your side of it is super hard too, right? I mean, so just I just want to point out this injunction, like I love your guys' honesty about what really was going on, because Callie, you're so confused, right? Like you don't even know up from down, right? Like your whole life just got blown away. And like, even with it being exposed right in front of your face, Tim, like you're still doing the addict thing. Like, okay, so how do we minimize, cover this up? Like, even though it's like, boom, like gone off like a nuclear bomb. And, and I get it. I mean, I, I can relate to that. Yeah. Damage control. I can totally relate to that. Okay. So that's kind of, we're in that two month period that's going on. So she goes home to, to her family and I don't know what she told her family then. I told them everything. Okay. <laughs> now you know. First time I've heard that. <laughs> now, okay. now you know. Now you know. Yeah, it's okay. Yeah. Um, and I said, okay, while we would have a, a phone conversation, whatever, said, okay, I'm all in. I'm going to start to get help for this. And I started to attend the our church's addiction recovery program. Which is like SA, right? It's, it's the LDS church's version of SA or AA. So it's the same 12 steps everyone's familiar with. Yep. Can I, can I back up a just a little bit? Um, at first our conversations were very angry. Yes. Like every, every conversation that he had with me was just, I'm going to fight for the kids. I'm going to, you know, like if we get a divorce, you know, like it was just, there was no humility whatsoever. And he was still like planning on singing at the temple dedication and, I knew that he just wasn't, he shouldn't be doing that. And so that's, that's kind of where we were at in conversation for several, for a couple of weeks. So it's now it's the night before the dedication. I'm still going to choir rehearsals. I'm still, we had just had a dress rehearsal that day. They had the cultural celebration where we get a big party. We celebrate Tucson out for everybody to come and see, um, and I'm excited and I'm getting ready. It is literally the 11th hour on the night before, 11 o'clock PM. I call my bishop. I've been starting to feel guilty all evening long, but at 11 o'clock PM, I call my bishop, my, my church leader. It's a bishop. You got to come over. I need to talk to you right now. Can you, can you please come over? 
And uh, he came over and I laid it all out. Uh, I told him that I was addicted. That was the first time I actually used that word. I have an addiction to pornography. Uh, I'd been having this affair. I'd been, and so we talked for a while. Obviously, my he he rescinded my temple recommend. Uh, I couldn't go to the dedicatory choir, and I told my my family, "Hey, I'm going to be in this session." Um, and then all of a sudden, when that session ended, my my phone blew up. Hey, where are you? What's going on? I didn't. I wanted nothing to do with my family. Um, they lived about two hours away and said, "We're coming down. We're gonna. We're gonna come." Said, "You're not welcome here. Do not come over. I will not let you in the house." Um, was this a reaction, just wanting to isolate after the fact, or yeah. was it? Yeah. Yeah. Total isolation. Leave me alone. Don't anybody ever talk to me. Um, the shame was there. Oh yeah, major shame, major embarrassment. Um, and then, so then I had, we had our first real conversation after that. And, you know, you talk, scriptures talk about a broken heart and a contrite spirit. That was my first moment then. Um, and, and so we had our first real conversation. Our tone was different. Our communication started to get a lot better. And I told her I'm all in. I'm, I'm going to start getting the help that I need. Because Callie, you felt the difference. Um, yeah, that that conversation. He had he was humble. That was like what I was looking for. I was waiting for him to to be humble and have that broken heart. You know, like recognize what he has done. And that was the first time that he I felt that from him. I just want to say something, and that's the. I just love this story because I love how uh, God battles for our hearts. How you can see that in your story, Tim. How you're you're literally, quite literally, in the eleventh hour, and God shows up and says, "No, you know what? We're going to do this now." And I just love that because it shows that God's there. He's 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 after you, right? Well, it's a couple things. One, He was not going to let His house be defiled. Right. Um, if you want to take a look at, at one quick stance, look at it that way. But yeah, more to the point of let's let's start this process of healing now. Let's get it going. So we we have this conversation. She comes home, uh, comes back to Tucson, and I told her I'm all in. I'm going to start going to these meetings. And one of on my way out the door to one of my meetings, my son who was three at the time, hands me a penny. It says, here, dad, here's your lucky penny. And I started to think about that for a while. I go, okay, well, what do you do when a three-year-old hands you a penny? You put it in your pocket, right? So I'm going to ask you guys some questions. What do you, when you think of a penny, what do you think of its worth, its value? If you see it on the street, what do you guys do if there's a random penny floating around out there? Oh, yeah, you discard it. Leave yeah, it where it is. Yeah. It, right? If it's in the street, maybe you kick it aside. If it's you go to a convenience store and you have a couple pennies and change, you put it in their little drop box, right, for the poor kids. Um, and I started thinking about that. And I have I have a little penny right here. This is not the penny, but it's a penny. Hey, I, I'm not trying to be this guy unashamed and afraid. We keep it real. So if you're going to bring a penny, we want the penny. We don't want <laughs> I know, I know. No, I'm just kidding. I'm totally just teasing. I'm just teasing. This is awesome. Keep going. Um, I started thinking about this penny and, uh, it's worthless. It's discarded. It's kicked aside. Well, so was I, I felt worthless. I was discarded. I was kicked aside. I didn't, you know, nobody, I wasn't of any value of any worth, but then there's another one, another person who will always pick me up, who will always carry me around, who will always, find value in me. And that, and that was the savior. I'm not worthless to him though. I'm one person, one out of trillions that have ever lived or will live on this earth. I'm still one individual who's incredibly important to our savior. Um, and he will always pick me up and he has picked me up and continues to, to lift me, to take me places where I didn't even know existed. Um, 
And so that that is what I call the parable of the penny. No, I, I, I love that. I love that. It's fantastic. I love that. And and I mean I think that's a I mean that I mean that's the hope right there, right? I mean that's the message you you finding that self-worth. Um but I think just kind of talking principle as you kind of entered I'm going to call it your all-in phase, right? I often say to couples like when you really started recovery. Um so tell me like what what was what changed in recovery? What shifted? Like Callie, we can start with you like what happened in recovery? What what changed for you to get you from that, like, I'm out, I'm leaving, this is over, to wanting to go from all in to now you share your story all the time? Well, there was actually a second D-Day after the all in, like he went all in, mm-hmm. he got a therapist, he was going to her regularly, um, and I went to see her once with him, and I really liked her. Um, I thought she was really good for him because she she challenged him. Um, and then we started couples therapy, and our couples therapist asked, you know, she wanted to see each of us individually, and it was my turn to go on my own. And as I was talking to her, I just had this thought I said I just I'm worried that he is doing it again how long how long had it been one year okay Mm -hmm. and and you know I can't remember what she said but I came home that day the very next day the next morning he was he had just gotten home from work supposed to be sleeping I go into our bedroom. He didn't hear me and he's on his phone watching pornography and I just lost it. Like I, I, I felt like I was stabbed in the heart. Yeah. And, and, and I, I had told him if I ever caught him again, that it was over. And so that was my plan. And he begged me to, to wait we we call our therapist, asked if we could get in earlier. We had an appointment set for five days later, and I and all I said was, "Can you can you just wait five days?" Because she said, "I want a divorce, not I'm thinking about it, not maybe we should. I want a divorce." So I all I the only defense I had is, "Can you just wait five days and talk to our therapist?" And uh, then the miracles, the real miracles, started happening the real path to recovery because there's nothing worse that could, that could happen to me um, than to lose her. We, she agreed to wait for the five days and the heart started to soften and our conversations though rough and sad were, were still productive conversations, but she still said, I need to, go back to my parents' house. And she told her family everything again, what was really going on. And uh, so I'm helping her load up the car. This is less than a week after we met with our therapist. Uh, she she got ready, we loaded up the car. And the first of many miracles was, was right then. She said, as I saying goodbye, says, whatever happens between us, whether we get divorced, whether we have an extended separation or whether we get back together, you have to figure this out. You have to figure this out for your own salvation. And that right there, it sunk in so deep and so profoundly. And it was truly an inspired message. It wasn't just some random thought that she had. She had the inspiration or the revelation to give to me that was the exact message I needed to hear because it was 100% true. It was sink or swim at that point. So I just want to highlight real quick, Callie, um, how, I don't know how to say it, how amazing it is that you had those boundaries to say, hey, you know what, if this happens again, we're done. Not to say that you can't make your own decisions later, but to have that, to have the boundary of, you know, I'm going back to my parents' house, I need to be there for me. And then to have the clarity of, of mind to be like, you know what, this is you and you need to work on this. So I just wanted to, 
I guess, commend you for that or I don't know, congratulate. I don't know what the word we'd go with is there, but yeah. But, well, and I guess my question, Callie, is like a lot of women struggle with the like control fear cycle, right? I need to control his recovery. I need to fix it. Or the earlier stages of that, like you talk, like, this is all my fault. Like he's gaslighting you and you like, so where, like where, what turned for you to have that type of empowerment to be able to look at him and be like, dude, you got to fix yourself. No matter what happens with us, I'm going to figure that out. Cause I'm, I have good boundaries. Like, but you gotta, like, cause a lot of women struggle. I've heard other women express a similar moment where they kind of were able to like, let go of the control. Be like, I'm not going to control you. I hope you change, but I'm going to have a happy life with or without you. Guess we'll see, but I'm going to have a happy life. Like, how did you get to that strength? Well, I think a couple of things. First, I, I think me being older when I got married was helpful in that way because mm-hmm. I knew that I could live on my own. I knew that I could take care of myself, you know? And so I knew that that, like, I didn't need him. I didn't, you know, like I wanted him, but I didn't need him. And another thing is I, I was up one night before I left. Um, well, I just want to clarify that real quick. You didn't need him in a codependent way, right? We all, we all want connection in our life, right? Meaningful relationships, but you had kind of already known, having been, you know, single and lived on, like you didn't have that codependent piece. Right. Okay. Yeah. And then I was up all night one night and I just was just sad. I was sad for him more than anything. I'm like, what kind of life? And I, w- I think I was given a gift that night. Um, I saw him as a, as a young boy when this all started and how he didn't get help, you know? And I, I kind of looked at my own sons and um, thought of them. If that happened to them, what would I hope for? Sorry, I'm, a, I'm an emotional person. <laughs> um, Do we cry on here all the I'm, time, I'm, Callie? I'm already, don't you I'm already even, crying, so you're good. Don't you even worry about it. <laughs> But that night I just saw him as a young boy and I was able to separate him from the addiction. And I knew that there was so much more to him than he even knew. I knew that there was so much more potential that was just being completely suffocated because of this addiction. And he got up in the middle of the night to check on me. And, um, I was, I just told him how sad I was for him because this addiction was more important to him than his family, that he had already lost one and he was about ready to lose another one. And so that's kind of, you know, the, the two things, like knowing that I was, that I would be okay without him, that I didn't need him in a codependent way. And just being able to separate him from the addiction. And and I can tell from your, just from just your candor and your story, like I think legitimately you would have gotten divorced. Yeah. Like, I, cause sometimes people it's like, well, maybe I would have. And it's like, yeah, but would you have really, like, as we're sitting here talking, I'm like, no, yeah, she would have moved on. Like <laughs> she would have done it. So um, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead, Tim. And Kai, how I, obviously I would say that probably had to be helpful for you. Oh, it, it's, it's been a tremendous blessing. Um, she mentioned something right then. So the, the addiction is more important to you than your family. And in the addiction recovery program manual, there is a sense that people, paraphrasing, says people find help when the pain of recovery becomes, uh, when the pain of addiction becomes greater than the pain of recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and that, that's where I was. So that second time, that was July 25th, 2017, 2018, July 25th, 2018. And that's when I really, like I was going to ARP meetings, group meetings. Um, but I wasn't doing anything. I was just going. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the second time I got real serious about it uh, and I started working the steps, writing in a journal every day, answering questions really searching things out. Um, I started reading, which was another 
huge thing. I Growing up, I hated reading, absolutely hated it. You couldn't get me to pick up a book, even the scriptures, really to save my life. But since that time, uh, July 2018, I've probably read 20 books all about the atonement, about uh, the Savior. Um, Real quick, what are some of those books that, that were best for you? Yeah, that, dude, we're over give, here in recovery give, being give like, us your hey, top dude, tell us the four, top yeah. ones. <laughs> oh, okay. The Infinite Atonement by Tad Callister is amazing. Uh, Continuous Atonement by Brad Wilcox was fun. I just got done. Uh, one by One by Elder Bednar uh, is a good one. Uh, let's see. What's that one? Oh, man. I, I have like a whole bookshelf dedicated to my books <laughs> that, that I've just read. Um, like Dragons Did They Fight is a great one. Mm-hmm. Armed with righteous, Righteousness. Um, dang, I'm trying to think of one where they're Miracle of Forgiveness. No, not Miracle of Forgiveness. They're, it's a story about when he's in Nineveh, the story of Job. Dang, I forget exactly what it's called, but uh, it's pretty popular. We'll put it. We'll put it on the blog post. We'll he make, restoreth my soul. We'll was make that... you remember that one. No, not yeah. I did read. Okay. He restoreth my soul. That was a fantastic book. Just all different. Just a whole bunch of different things. I have learned more about the Savior and more about the atonement in this last year and a half, two years, than I have growing up in the the LDS and the Mormon churches program. You know, despite hitting all those perfect milestones at the right age, at the right time, I learned more about the Savior during this time than than I ever have. And his love, we have no clue. We have no inkling of the amount of love that he actually has for us, how far he is willing to to go to lift us up and to, to carry us where we need to be. There is a, a scripture in the Book of Mormon um, that is actually amazing to me. It talks about how Satan leads us down to hell by flaxen cords, right? And if you think about what a flaxen cord is, it's a really thin thread that's easily breakable. But if you bind them together, it becomes incredibly powerful, incredibly strong, so the imagery of this really thin but breakable cord being wrapped around my neck holds very true. And I was being led by those flaxen cords and to my utter destruction. But then I realized they're still flaxen cords and they're still breakable. I may have to break one by one until they become loose enough where I can break them all. I may not be able to break it all in one go, but I can break a little bit at a time, break one triggering thing at a time and move, slowly move on until finally I was able to break free and become, become this new creature. Yeah, I, I, I love that. I, it reminds me of one of my favorite quotes is, I would rather be a mile away from hell walking away from it than a hundred miles from hell walking towards it. <laughs> Right, and so I no, I love how you just described that, Kelly. What were what were other big, you know? I mean, I I think you said it well, Tim. Kind of the miracle moments, like what were other big transition points for you in recovery, right? Like, and the one direct question I ask you is to start to trust him again, right? Because you'd been, I mean, you just like we can't, I can't even hold space for the what you've been through right like if i'm being honest like i really can't like i don't have the capacity or the understanding at this point in my own recovery and space to like really know what that experience was for you like and so but that's so so i mean how like how yeah how did you find your own healing from something so devastating um i did join i joined a women's um support group for you know, wives who are struggling with the same thing with their husbands that are um, addicted to pornography or sexual addiction. And that has been a huge help to know that I'm not alone and that we all have have experienced the gaslighting. We've all experienced, experienced the crazy making where they, where it just feels like whatever we say is not true or not right. And, um, but having having that support 
has been really big. But I think also like the first time around, I don't think either, like neither of us were completely all in, even though we said that we were. Um, The second time around, I had to go all in too on my, my own recovery. I started reading more books. I started praying more. I started studying the scriptures more, you know? So I, I put in the work for myself to, to, to really get to that point. And I think, you know, like I said, that those little miracles of being able to separate who, like who he truly is from the addiction, that the addiction does not define who he is. Um, that's been a huge help to me because I can see him as a child of God instead mm-hmm. of, you know, this person that has hurt me so, so badly. Let me ask one last question here for you. Um, so, you know, there's multiple rock bottoms here, right? What's different now, Callie? Everything about Tim is different. Like, very sweet. <laughs> there, there's not a part of his life that is not different. He's he's more compassionate. He's more patient. He, um, his family even sees it. I got to tell you a little bit about his family. Like coming into this relationship with him, um, I felt like an outcast with his family. And she was the second woman, the other woman. They had even told me his, his first wife would, had been a sister for 15 years and that's not going to oh, stop. You know? yeah. <laughs> oh gosh. Oh gosh. So, yeah. um, here's, here's a bucket of shame. Yeah. No. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Huh. So, um, so that was a struggle, but I realized later that it was because of like, he had pushed them away for so long like isolating he had isolated he had done so much like he he had so he had i don't know so it was kind of his you know how he reacted to his family how how he interacted with Mm -hmm. his family influenced me but now like they they call him the new tim because he is a completely different person i i like that and and the and the and the last question we'll ask you here is, um, which I which I ask everyone, um, because the the thing that I hope everyone feels that I felt listening to your story, and I get the ability that I can sit here with you, right, and see you and how you react, um, just the connection that's obvious between you two, um, and and the authenticity, like I just you're truly authentic people at this point, like it's. It's to me that's not a question sitting here with you sharing your story. Um, what I imagine, you know, recovery is hard as you know. So we have people who are listening who they're at that point where they ship him off in the car, Callie, and say, I don't know, I'm going to give you to God and see what happens. And, you know, Tim, where they're like, crap, I hit rock bottom. I, I'm lying about it again. I'm stuck again. And so I just want to give each of you the opportunity, like if we had that listener sitting here with us, who was really at the at the crossroads of believing whether or not the atonement's real for them, believing or not recovery's real, if you had that person here who's at that crossroads, we can end with this, what would you tell them? I would tell them unequivocally that the Savior is real, that he loves them, and that he wants them to be happy and wants them to know that he is right there. One of my favorite scripture stories is the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead. When Christ went to the family, he intentionally waited four days. And he goes to the family and Mary and Martha are crying. And there's the, the, the shortest scripture in all of, in all of scriptures that Jesus wept. And it is my firm belief that no matter your situation, Jesus weeps with you. If it's the single mother trying to raise a family on her own who cries herself to sleep, Jesus weeps with her. If it's the hurt wife who's 
was struggling through addiction, soaking her tears with pillow, her pillow with tears. Jesus weeps with him. To the addicted, the repentant soul who wants to recover and wants that help, who cries out, Father, help me. Jesus weeps with him. But I also believe that the person he sheds the most tears for is the person that won't reach out. He stands there with open arms, come unto me and I will give you rest. But he, they won't and they don't because they can do it on their own. They just got to be stronger. He weeps the most with them, for them, because all he wants to do is to help them. I will also tell them that there are some things that they have to do. They have to change their life. They have to do things differently. You can't say, Father, help me. But I'm not going to move. on the exact same path, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. One of the greatest things that my wife ever did is she removed the internet from my phone. Okay? I can, there are certain things that I, that, access the internet on the on the background like i can get on zoom i can get on facebook i can do certain things but i have no access to the internet i can't search for anything random on the internet you have to do things differently and you have to let the savior guide your life you have to you cannot do this on your own you are not strong enough you are not capable enough you can't just go through the motions yep i read my scriptures today, no, you have to dive into the scriptures. You have to pray. You have to, to write, write in a journal, write letters to yourself, your younger self, write letters to God, write letters to your wife, write letters to your kids. You, you, have, to, yeah. you have to put in a lot of work to change yeah. what you're doing. And then as you do that, the Savior, more than willing, more than wanting, to change who you are. Yeah. Savior no, loves you. He will help you. You have to let him. No, that's awesome. That's awesome. Callie, bring me back, bring me back to um cuz I'm totally down with the what you're saying the dailies, but who I want you to talk to right now Callie is that woman who's at that crossroads of believing or not believing that might be listening to this podcast saying, yeah, I mean, good for them that they stayed married and whatever, but it's not, that's, it's not going to work out for me. This isn't going to happen. Okay. What would you say? So I think the biggest thing is to understand that it's not your fault. Um, and also to know that just, as the savior is there for the addicted, he is there for the wife that has been hurt. Um, one, the thing that I have realized too is that our savior, we're both children of God. He's not going to say, oh, you've got it. You know, you've got to divorce him. He's worthless. He's not going to. You know, like, sure. he's hurt you so yeah. bad, you know. He loves both of us. He's not going to say that. He will give you peace to know if if you are safe. He will give you peace to know if you are okay staying. Um, but he also trusts you to make your own decision. And I think what I've come across in a lot of, um, with a lot of the sisters that I am in support groups with is, is that that's the question. They're like, should I stay? What, you know, what should I do? And a lot of them like just feel completely lost and hopeless because they are not either getting an answer or it's not the answer they want. Mm -hmm. Um, but to know that, the savior trusts you to make your own choices and make, do what's right for you in your life. Yeah. Make the choice, pray about it and get a peaceful confirmation 
and know that everything works out for your good. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Tim and Cal, you guys truly are amazing. Um, I don't think there's anything else that I can say on the story. So um, as always, um, we let people pick, you know, kind of a song to represent their recovery story. And so, uh, you know, Cal and Tim were kind of looking at each other. Tim was the decider. And so um, we hope that you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please go to iTunes and give us five stars. That's how we're judged in the world of podcasting is there. Uh, We invite you to follow us at unashamedunafraid.com. Go to the website. You can connect with us in a lot of different ways. And with this, we're going to end with uh, Tim's song request, which is I Heard Him Come by Jeff Goodrich. I heard him come. I saw his very face. I wondered who would come into this Where dead men walk And where the dying talk Of life before The curse upon them came He looked on me He must have felt my gaze He came toward me crowded maze and I a leper in shame hid my head till someone said Jesus is his name and he said nations fall behind him the rivers crawl to find him mountains move just to let him through Come and never leave him Just let your heart believe him Never let his light go Never let your love grow dim He fed With one loaf of bread I saw him raise a child from the dead He healed the sick The blind saw his eyes The lame man stood And joyous were his cries And he said Nations fall behind him crawl to find him mountains move just to let him through come and never leave him just let your heart believe him never let his light go never let your love grow dim Just be